Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and joining me today we have two guests both calling in from Singapore, Adrian Lim and Pruksa Yamthongthong, co-managers of Asia Dragon Investment Trust. The trust is the second largest investment trust in the Association of Investment Companies Asia-Pacific sector, with 794 million in assets at the time of recording. Managers have comfortably outperformed their benchmark, the MSCI Asia X Pacific Japan Index, over the past five years by searching for high-quality companies with good cash flows and healthy balance sheets. Adrian, Pruxer, thank you for joining me. Before we jump into your investment approach and talking about the fund, inflation is the big question on everyone's mind at the moment and in the financial media. In your latest market commentary, you acknowledge that inflation is emerging as a cause for concern amid the boom in commodity prices. But you say that you believe inflationary pressures will be temporary. Please, can you talk us through your thoughts on the topic um, for both China and the wider Asia region? I mean, if we look at um, China today, inflation seems to be relatively under control. But I think um, what is catching investors' mind is the spike in PPI, um, the uh, producer's price index that is uh I think leading the way and the question is, you know, how much of this will actually translate into higher um, consumer prices? So far, we are not seeing this appearing yet, but I think um, it's something that we are watching uh, relatively closely. I mean, when we look at the reasons behind the rise in PPI in China, then a large part of it seems to be driven by higher imported raw material prices. Um, so we are seeing prices of, for example, iron ore um, is um, having a very strong increase, um, partially driven by the strength of demand as the global economy opens. Um, part of that get transferred into China um, as uh, iron ore prices are more global in nature. Um, part of this is also due to the supply issue where in many parts of mining communities, they are in emerging countries and that's where we are still facing with um, COVID-related issues and therefore supply was also somewhat disrupted. So we are in this you know, sort of like um, an imbalance type of a period at the moment. And that's why we are seeing this spike up in price. So the Chinese government is watching this closely, whether, you know, how much of this PPI is going to translate into CPI. Um, but I think the other part of the equation that we have to think about is also on the food cost, which is a large part of um, CPI as well. And so far, that seems to be uh, relatively under control as well. After, you know, over the past two years, we have seen quite an increase in pork prices in China, for example. So I think there are many driving forces in this. Um, and certainly um, when inflation should come back um, as economy opens up, um, as we have seen with you know the global economy as well in the US, where we are seeing a very strong stimulus program coming through, um, inflation can be a risk. But so far, um, if you look at the stimulus program back in China, they have been also on a relatively disciplined manner this year. So I would say it's a concern, but it seems manageable so far. Thank you. Adrian, do you think it's a concern outside of China in, in the Asia region? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the things that uh, Prokset talked about, um, the commodity prices as well as the opening up of the demand cycle uh, following a terrible 2020 uh, is prevalent not just in China, but across the region as well. There will be some uh, local uh, adjustments for each of the countries with the logistic constraints as well as the supply constraints. But by and large, that is something that is expected given that there will be quite a recovery shock when that comes true. The pace of this would be quite dependent on how uh, COVID is brought under control as well 
and you know vaccination programs are being rolled out at different paces in different geographies and that's something that will have an impact on how fast or whether inflation uh, shows up in a meaningful way or not absolutely in terms of the opening up of the economies you're in singapore you're under a a fresh lockdown at the moment how are the vaccine programs across asia coming out and how do you see the opening of the economies over over the next year well across the region there has been a variety of uh, vaccination successes and 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 uh, failures or delays and actually the range of the reaction has been quite uh, varied as well so in smaller economies like in smaller markets like singapore which is uh, reasonably manageable and is well administered um, vaccination rates are pretty high in the by Asian standards, that's in the 20s for full vaccination. Not quite there as what you would have in certain parts of the Western world, uh, but um, but um, uh, reasonably uh, moving in the right direction and accelerating as uh, news of supplies uh, have uh, been positive over the last one or two weeks in the different countries as well. And then when you compare that, just within Southeast Asia, for example, there'll be other uh, markets or countries where vaccination rates have not been quite so so fast. And in the low single digits would be places like Philippines and Thailand. But those are also being moved in the, the right direction as well. But they can come in fits and starts, given the uh, natural uh, logistical challenges and physical challenges of getting uh, vaccines distributed, stored, and then, um, and then uh, vaccinated across countries which are quite spread out and which are do not have the same level of uh, education or population density. Tying that to to your fund and your investment approach, all these countries opening up at at different speeds, where are you seeing the best value um, within the portfolio? What geographies and sectors? Brooks, maybe maybe you'd like to start. Yeah, I can start with that. And I think, um, you know, as vaccinations rates increase, we are likely to see economic activity resumes and consumption and, you know, the spending that people have been holding back because they are hoarded up at home um, are coming out to the forefront as well. So with that, if you think about the sectors that could um, be well positioned for this, it would be firstly the services sector. So services sector, for example, within China, where we are already starting to see this happening currently as China is the first in and first out of the COVID situation. Um, we are seeing things like domestic tourism, um, things that are related to uh, consumption or premiumization of consumption. Um, and the companies that are behind providing those services, um, they are actually seeing good numbers coming through in terms of their earnings. And I think we are continuing to see that opening up um, on the domestic theme within China. So within the portfolio, we do have companies like China Tourism, for example. And what they have um, as one of their business is they have um, huge duty-free stores on um, this holiday island in China. It's, it's a Hainan island, so very sunny, uh, very good weather. And as the economy opens up um, domestic tourism, that people do go there to take their holidays. At the same time, um, they go there to spend on duty-free goods where in the past they uh, might travel to Korea and Japan to buy some of these goods, for example. But now you can actually buy them within China itself 
and there has been a change in the amount that you can buy. So the quota has been lifted and the type of goods that you can buy as well. So you are able to buy uh, more than cosmetics, um, which has been, I think, one of the key purchases in the past. So that has been um, one of the beneficiary that um, we saw in terms of resumption of uh, services. Um, other areas that we are seeing would be uh, places where it's more of a domestic tourism destination. So uh, Sands China, for example, is one that could start to see more interprovincial traveling coming through as well. Um, that could be one that we are starting to see some of the premium, premium mass consumption coming through into Macau as people look to uh, have more leisure travel. And the other area that um, could be quite interesting is actually um, an insurance company called AIA. So AIA, what they sell um, is uh, premium life insurance uh, protection business. They do have a large presence in China, but they have also a very sizable presence in Hong Kong. And in the past, um, their Hong Kong book, the growth is actually driven by Chinese travelers crossing over to Hong Kong to buy um, some of these life insurance policies because they are price more comprehensively and that remains one of you know one of the things that we think will continue to come back as china reopens their border with neighboring countries so yeah plenty of opportunities yeah that sounds exciting um how are you feeling just generally across across the fund how are you feeling about valuation levels because china, india's had a strong um strong stock market recently despite being possibly one of the worst affected countries by the pandemic. China's, uh, China's had a very strong market last year, which has tailed off a bit um, in the last few months. How, Adrian, perhaps you could talk through different parts of the funds and how you feel about valuations. Yeah, I mean, as you correctly pointed out, uh, India, from a top-down perspective, based on PE multiple averages, is uh, not cheap. So that's not a place where you would typically see value uh, from simple valuation methodologies. Uh, but there are things there that we, we, we like that we think have proven resilient over this period of time. And actually, it's very difficult to, um, to conclude on valuations by countries or by markets at this point in time. Uh, there is a lot of built-in uncertainty with respect, with respect to the recovery in 2021 or 2022. Um, with the opening of borders, with COVID, uh, COVID vaccination progress, and uh, with the rising chance of inflation as well. So it is um, across the region, there are pockets of opportunities in, in recovery stories that we think prove themselves to be reasonably priced if, uh, if recovery comes in the next 12, 18 months. But, uh, you know, there, there's, it, that's, that's a very difficult call to make. Uh, we are seeing things that look uh, superficially cheap uh, on uh, 20, 20, 12 and 18 month forecasts going out, but currently, uh, because of the difficult period that they, they have just come out of, have very little to show in terms of earnings and cash flows for it. So that's something that that will be a challenge. Uh, with respect to India itself, um, there has it has been a beneficiary of being relatively late in the recovery. Um, and then enjoying a relatively strong uh, run of liquidity, uh, primarily driven by domestic and then at times driven by foreign capital as well. And that has carried for, forward this, this year. Uh, we are quite cautious that although the fund and the trust has an overweight position uh, and it's full of stocks that we think are very good franchises, 
franchise uh, within the Indian market, uh, we are quite prudent and we are quite cautious about the exact pace of recovery though. So we like, we like things like HDFC, which has a very strong franchise in the Indian mortgage market across India, not just in one or two states. Uh, we like the management team there. We like the way they prudently manage their balance sheet. Uh, but we, we do need to keep an eye on these things and valuations at certain places and certain sectors uh, are priced for uh, a perfect recovery, something that we think should be treated with caution. You've mentioned a few financials. I was looking through your holdings earlier and it does look like there are a number of banks. And I think it's it's quite interesting how the sector is evolving. So there's a lot of talk about the future of money at the moment um, and you have China cracking down on cryptocurrencies as well as testing its own digital yuan. Do central bank digital currencies pose as a threat to the value of banks? And how do you see this evolving in Asia? Yeah, I mean, if you look at um, the long-term development of uh, central bank currency, the digital currency in China, um, it's quite interesting that they began to look into this as early as 2014. And I think over the course of the pandemic situation last year, they have actually begun um, doing some pilot testing in cities like Shenzhen, Suzhou, for example, where uh, what happened was that they, they give you Hongbao. Um, Hongbao is like a red packet in China where basically you, you give digital money um, in red packets. Uh, most of the time you give it during Chinese New Year. But this time I think they are just testing out through testing out the digital currency through their distribution channel. And if you look at the key players as to how um, this digital yuan is working in China, uh, one of the most distinctive is that uh, the traditional players are actually part of this whole supply chain. So you have the central bank, the PBOC issuing the digital currency. Um, They then distribute it to the commercial banks in China. um, And those would be the large state-owned banks. And the commercial banks in China then uh, work with guys like uh, WePay or Alipay, for example, to come up with you know, um, certain lab, certain app, and they are all partners in trying to distribute this um, for use to test the use cases. And and usually the link between them is the QR code where you can um, open the app up, use the QR code, and you can scan it at the end consumption place, whether in um, certain uh, retail outlets, for example. So that's the whole distribution. And from that, you can see that you know, the intention of the central government so far is to actually digitalize the the physical money in circulation. So, and the reason behind that is that, uh, you know, physical money, whether you think about the banks and coins is a bit, um, well, it's, it's difficult to keep. It takes money to actually print them. And I think more importantly, it's difficult to trace um, as to, you know, where, where this physical money is being used, for example. But if you digitalize that, um, that solves the, the cost side of things, but it also improves the traceability side of things, which I think um, as time goes by, that is going to become very, very important information uh, for the Chinese government as a whole as well. So far, they are co-assisting with the likes of WePay and Alipay. Um, but then what this, what this means is that you are very likely to see um, increased competition um, for this for the two dominant payment systems that are in China. And it is really up to the consumers to actually choose uh, which one serves them better. So I think it goes back to us having the confidence in, you know, whether the the, the payment systems guys like um, Alipay or WePay are able to continue to innovate the ecosystem 
to bring the most convenient um, way to the to use the payment system for consumers. And usually in China, as the way that we have seen the model evolve, payment system is just the beginning. Um, after you have the payment system, you then use them to to do other things like use the spare money to make certain investment, use the spare money to to actually buy insurance, etc. So that's it's not just a payment system. Um, is 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 what I'm trying to get at, and there's a lot of innovation involved, and I think um, we are going to hit that way in terms of the development of the future payment industry. It's fascinating. It's a really interesting area, um, and just sort of moving on from you mentioned. Alipay and Alibaba is a big holding in your fund. How do you see, how are the antitrust proceedings developing in China? Um, so Beijing's trying to be curb their dominance, um, of Alibaba in particular. Uh, how do you think this will play out? Is it posing as a threat? I think it is playing out at the moment. Um, but I think what we, what we should be aware of is to perhaps take a step back and, and look at, um, I think, the broader context of um, why this is happening in the first place. And, and I think um, anti-monopoly is, is just one piece of the puzzle. Um, if we take, back, you know, take a step back and look at what the Chinese government has been trying to do over the last two to three years, um, you, we can think of them as the Chinese government overall is trying to sort of like strengthen their house. So um, if you think China is, is a very big house, it's trying to strengthen their house, strengthen their foundation to be able to withstand, you know, a lot more stormy weather, which I think over the last 18 months, China has gone through a fair bit of, of that stormy weather. Um, I think we would all agree on that as well. And therefore, over the last two to three years, what we have seen is that, you know, China has begun with the supply side reform that was painful in cutting some of the overcapacity industries. They have moved on to deleverage the economy to a certain extent. They have moved on then to uh, basically try to control the rise of shadow banking and bring down that proportion. And then um, COVID hits. So when COVID hits, a lot of these uh, reforms have actually been pushed to the back burner for a while because you have to deal with the COVID situation. And now this year, when that is more relatively under control, we start to see this um, strengthening the house coming back into the forefront in terms of the Chinese government agenda. And and I think it's no surprise given that um, the digital economy in China is such an important well pillar of the house um, that China would need to find a way to evolve along with the increasing regulatory challenges. Um, and, and the thing is, this is not only unique to China. I think globally, all the regulators are finding ways to to evolve their regulation as well to um, be able to govern the risks associated with the growth of the digital economy and the big tech companies a lot better. So I think it's a question of regulation catching up in this space. And I think what the Chinese government ultimately wants to do is not to kill off the innovation. I think they do realize that innovation is very, very important in this space. Um, and it is also not out to nationalize the industry as well because they know that in this space, to be innovative, you actually need to let it to be run in the hands of the private players, but then within a you know certain framework that they are trying to set in place so that they can control the risks. Um, and this is happening across different sectors where China is about you know controlling the risks, um, making sure that if growth is happening too fast, you try to rein things a bit back in, and then you try to make sure that the for the foundations are better suited um, for that level of growth. And I think this is what is happening today um, within the internet sector in China. Um, Alibaba is the first one. Um, it is also the most widely acclaimed one as well. But I 
think this is happening across the whole industry. Yeah, it looks like the regulator's been a bit softer on Tencent. Do you think Tencent will be will be next? Well, actually, Tencent has gone through that level of scrutiny before as well. I think any company in China that has a strong, very strong market position within the sectors they operate in, and in this case, Tencent would be very strong in, in gaming, uh, among other things that they have evolved from. Um, they have gone through that level of scrutiny as well. We saw that uh, a couple of years back, uh, for example, um, the Chinese government was very concerned with the impact of gaming on society and held back or slowed down the approval pace uh, of new games for the Tencent group as well. So there, you know, things can come in the form of uh, penalties or fees or, or they can come in the form of additional levels of approvals or additional lines being drawn about how businesses can operate. I think given the scale and the strength and the uh, incumbency of companies like Tencent and Baba, um, you know, even if they were uh, not in, if they were in any other country, they would be going through the same uh, levels of scrutiny as well. I think governments are always uh, mindful of monopolistic tendencies uh, and in fast, dynamic markets like this one, where there is, there has been a lot of innovation over the last 10 years, um, they would especially be mindful of that. And Prixi, you mentioned the shadow banking sector in, in your previous response. How is, is the expansion of credit in China something that, that you worry about? Yes, it is. Um, but I think, um, we are not the only one worried about it. The government is also worried about it and, and you know, that's, that's certainly good news because that means that they have, um, they are aware of the issue and therefore they have begun working on the issue as well through, you know, over the last two, three years, deleveraging that part that I've been uh, talking about as well. So I think the discipline is there in terms of trying to bring down the leverage. Um, the discipline is there is also trying to be more disciplined with regard to the stimulus measures. Uh, if you compare you know, the stimulus measures that China has put through over the course of the last 12 months versus elsewhere around the world, um, I would say that they are relatively restrained. And I think uh, the concern about leverage has some part to play uh, with regard to how much they were willing to spend to stimulate the economy. I think one particular area where within the broader leverage where it's more concerning is the real estate sector in China. And that's where we also see that regulations by the government have been a lot more stringent, which actually started last year as well, where um, the government has not only put through restrictions on um, property developers, um, so basically they have um, issued measures, what you call three red lines, uh, but essentially what that means is that um, if you have a certain financial leverage above certain financial ratio, um, you will not be able to get more access from the banking system to fund your growth. So that's controlling leverage on the developer's front. You also have the government controlling leverage on the consumer's front where basically the banking sector would be um, not it would not be able to make more loans if they have exceeded a certain quarter of their mortgages um, over a certain period of time. So you will see that the Chinese government does pay a lot of attention to, to leverage and within that, the leverage in the bank, real estate sector given how it is very much tied to, to consumers as well and is a large part of the economy as well. Um, that's something that they pay a lot of attention about and that's something that we do look at um, a lot as well. 
looking at leverage in a, in a different part of the market, um, Adrian. So the the Chinese stock market, there's reports about high levels of margin trading. I read on Reuters last week that China's margin trading balance on the Shanghai and Shenzhen stock exchanges has reached its highest level since 2015. Um, is this, are you seeing froth in the market and does sort of frenzied retail trading, is that something that worries you? Yeah, I think when you see these levels of uh, excitement or frenzy, I, I think you're always worried. Uh, but this also, um, Ch- China is not unique in this sense. Um, quite a few of the markets that we've had in the region, um, the strong performance in COVID recovery uh, has come from retail capital. So that's something that we need to bear in mind and watch and make sure that uh, what, what we do when we pick stock and we trade is um, we, we need to be very mindful of the underlying companies and what they're currently seeing on the ground. Uh, and, you know, if, if we see that a rally or commensurated uh, or valuations are far beyond what we think is a prudent position to be in, you know, we tend to pair back instead of like fanning the flames of, of, of some of these rallies. So it, it's something that we are mindful of. I think uh, within the China onshore markets, uh, it has been a retail-driven market and I think it has also been a very volatile market with, you know, margin financing. So this is not um, something that's new to the nature of the market at all. Um, and, and that's the risk that we have to always be, you know, aware about. But I think this is also one of the reasons why where um, it creates a lot more mispricing opportunities for institutional investors like us to be able to you know, take uh, take advantage of some of this sell-off in the market to buy into the stocks that we like, um, that we think are fundamentally sound. So we actually view this as as an opportunity, and and for us, it's it's going back to to each stock level and making sure that uh, valuations don't look too elevated versus their growth expectations. And in terms of your investment process, uh, looking at your fact sheet, the country allocation is quite similar to your benchmark index. Is this by design or is this just where you're seeing the best opportunities? This is where we're seeing the best opportunities. The, the, the most of, um, when we, we don't, we, we look at things from a top-down perspective, of course, as well. But the, the primary driver is re- really look, looking and comparing stocks between their peer group, stocks between their peer group within the region, stocks between their countries. And, and really coming to that, that kind of granular decision-making, um, you would have found that um, with our stock-picking uh, process uh, focused very much on the quality of identifying um, Asian leaders. Uh, they are good at what they do, not just domestically, but internationally as well, uh, to some extent. Um, what we have done is over the last two, three years, you've seen a gradual shift uh, towards um, towards North Asia. So if you compare Dragon's uh, portfolio exposure, you'd see that uh, in China and Korea and Taiwan as well, there's been a greater shift in increasing the weights. Uh, and part of it is, very, a big part of it is very much driven by company-specific performance, uh, where we've seen resilient P&L performance over this difficult two, three years, where we have seen um, very steady investment and where you've seen uh, business models that have proven to be successful in the new economy space as well as resilient in the old economy space as well. 
and that's been driving the, the, the portfolio composition or profile on a geographic perspective. And perhaps I would like to add that, um, you know, uh, even though we might look like we are close to China from a benchmark perspective, um, the composition is actually quite different as well, where within that we are actually overweight to the China onshore. Um, so domestic China Asia, we are overweight to that and we are actually underweight uh, China offshore names. And apart from China, um, we do have a very exciting market positioning in Vietnam, which is um, off benchmark position. Yeah, well, we'll come back to Vietnam, but um, just can you can you just tell us the difference between the A-share market and the offshore, just in case any of our listeners aren't aware of that? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, if you look at the A-share market, we find the A-share market, the reason why we are overweight there is because we find the A-share market to be a very exciting one for stock pickers. So I've talked about the inherent volatility driven by the retail trading um, that allow us to you know, pick the stocks that we like um, and more mispricing opportunities. But in terms of the type of companies as well, the A-share market offer us a more um, interesting mix of consumption. Um, so consumer names within China very strong brand names. Um, so companies that are bigger names in our portfolio, like China Tourism is an Asia name, for example. So some of these names are just not available on the offshore market or in the hit share market. Um, in the hit share market, it tends to be more of a mixture of, say, old economy stocks. So you have the real estate companies, you have um, some of the large, very large state-owned banks, and then you have the internet names, um, which we, we do like some of them and we don't like some of them and that's why you will see that the positioning is quite different. And Adrian, Vietnam, can you tell us about some of your favourite Vietnam holdings and why you're keen on the region? Well, Vietnam's coming up from a very low base and because of its uh, slightly different um, development of its uh, markets and economy and its marketplace and capital markets, uh, there is a very steady opportunity to reform and catch up with the rest of the region. Uh, so we, we like it based on where it's at and the direction it's pointed to, which is to uh, increase the efficiency and uh, efficiency and effectiveness of its capital markets. And among them, uh, we've got uh, we've got quite what we think is quite a nice uh, balance of, of portfolios. We've got primary one is Techcom Bank, uh, which we like. We think it's a medium-sized uh, player within the Vietnam market that has proven to be very resilient, focused on doing the right things, even during the difficult 2020. We know that the operating environment was difficult at that point in time, and yet it managed to grow profitably while maintaining steady, uh, healthy margins uh, without compromising the asset quality of its loan book. So we, we, we have the biggest position there. And then we supplement that a little bit with uh, you know, milk and mobile world. Um, so uh, we think that uh, these are three opportunities that give us a nice balance. They are, they are off benchmark, so they add a little bit of uh, spice to the an opportunity to the trust. Uh, but uh, we want to be, make, be sure that we are quite prudent as well. So this, this collectively makes up about 2 to 2.5% of the trust. And we've talked a bit about the areas that, you've, that you like and that you've been, been adding to, but can you tell us what companies you've been selling most recently? Well, actually, it's been a very uh, it's been a very interesting five quarters. Or, or since I tend to look at it at five quarters because that's when the COVID shocks hit the markets. And if you look at our our list of stocks, actually, we've been we've been doing quite a bit of we've been doing quite a bit of uh, name change, uh, name trading uh, in the last 
one and a half years or so. So typically, in every year, we, we buy and we buy about 10, eight to 10 names. We sell about eight to 10 names. Uh, and that's what we've been doing for the last three, four years. But the last year and a half or so, we, we added about 20 to 30 names and we sold about 20 to 30 names as well. So there's been a lot more name change, uh, name change turnover in the portfolio. But, and one of the reasons for that is the amount of volatility we've had in the market. And sometimes you don't get to buy as much as you want before you start selling again because there's so much price volatility in the market that you can't justify or feel comfortable with some of the strong rallies that we've had. Um, and the opportunities are all, all over, actually. Um, you, you couldn't say that uh, we were very big on China at this point in time. We were already big on China pre-COVID, and it gave us an opportunity to change the asset mix and exposure mix within China. But actually, our, uh, our profile uh, from a geographic perspective uh, has not evolved very much during this time. But within each of these sectoral baskets, we have the opportunity to, to, to buy and sell some of the, the positions here. I think of the um, just the notable ones, um, the notable initiations over the last 15, 18 months would be uh, Alibaba as one of the, the holdings that we have added. And uh, InfoH is quite interesting. And these are two stocks that are quite interesting because they feed very much into the e-commerce, the, into the online migration that's been triggered and catalyzed by the COVID shutdowns in China. It, these two stocks are Chinese and Indian, but uh, that's happened across the region. So that's quite an interesting play uh, for the portfolio. Uh, we've also been reducing things like uh, we've been reducing things in uh, certain markets where they have slightly uh, old, older economy connotations. But uh, because the operating environment has also been tough and we've been seeing a, a delay or postponement of the pace of recovery. So some of our uh, real estate stocks, for example, we have also been, been uh, pairing back and reducing. Uh, so things like uh, city developments uh, in, in Singapore, as well as um, stocks like uh, Keppel and Central Patana, uh, which we think uh, are going through a difficult cyclical time where recovery will be stretched out. Uh, those are some things that we take some, some uh, profit off and exited as well. So all in all, a lot of trading opportunities, a lot of initiation and exit opportunities, but very difficult to call a trend given the volatility of what we've seen in the market. Absolutely. That, I, I was, I was going to ask if you've maybe been pivoting back into the more cyclical stocks as the economy opens, but it sounds like, sounds like that's not the case. Um, there has been a slight adjustment there. So, um, as you know, uh, quite a lot of the, um, we saw quite a lot of resilience and excitement in the, in the less cyclical stocks, the more technology or the online migration evolution type themes and, and, and ideas. So that had served us well in, in uh, the second half of last year. But because of the, uh, what we think of the uh, added, added positive sentiment coming up from vaccination announcements and programs, and uh, the change of guard at the White House, uh, there has been uh, a greater uh, positive sentiment within the marketplace that allowed um, some of the cyclical uh, stocks to, to gain traction as well. So we are, we, are, we are looking at some of these opportunities and adjusting for them uh, at the side, but uh, they are not meaningful adjustments. The, the trust needs to be uh, balanced for, for, um, for, for all kinds of opportunities. 
and we, we can't pivot hard the other way um, because um, some of the stocks that are being rotated out continue to deliver some very good numbers uh, in these, these few quarters. So we like the balanced approach. Sounds reassuring. People always say how difficult timing the market is. It looks like environmental, social and governance um, factors play an important part in your investment process. Brookster, could you um, tell us how you how you assess these factors and what sort of standards you expect from companies and maybe how this how it compares in Asia to in the West? I think um, we do take uh, ESG factor risks very seriously and, and that forms a very much um, the key pillar of our overall quality assessment of the company uh, because that drives the longer term um, sustainability of their operations as well. And I think what we try to do is we take things down to the company level so everything is bottom up. Uh, when we think about the issues of the ESG, we bring it down to the company level and we assess it like the way that we assess, you know, the business model of a certain company. We then rate how this ESG, how the company is dealing with their material ESG risks um, that are pertinent to the company, then also is pertinent to their uh, sector, for example. Um, and that's really important because there's no one size fit all. You've got to be um, able to analyze the relevant risk for the relevant company that would be driving the, the material difference. So for every single company, we would have our own internal view of its ESG capability. We would then also have an understanding of, you know, what are the key ESG engagement areas that we would like to achieve with the company. And then when we go and meet with management, we then drive some of this agenda and ask perhaps uh, hopefully a thought-provoking questions to the management team as to, you know, how are you dealing with all this? And then with that, we come up to be to have our assessment of our overall ESG rating of the company. What we then um, do with this is that we then compare to what external rating agencies think about this company in itself, and then we see where the difference lies. And I think most of the time, when we find with the companies that we own, at least in Asia, is that they are doing the right things. They are very aware of the risks. And, and I would say um, the understanding of this topic has increased very much over the last three to five years. Um, before this, um, we were quite far behind. But I think the understanding of this topic has increased um, very much. But I think the disclosure of um, what they are doing in particular to this topic is actually uh, quite poor in Asia. And that's where the gap lies between Asian um, companies and Western companies that I think are more uh, well-equipped and get asked a lot by um, their respective investors with regard to the disclosure. So I think what we are trying to do um, quite hard is to make sure we understand the risks of the ESG. We make sure that the external rating agencies do understand what the company is trying to do as well and get them to improve the disclosure. And hopefully that will allow us to um, benefit from some of the positive changes that goes on at the company level. How much engagement do you have with companies on the subject? Are they quite open? Like if Even if the disclosure is not high, how much how much access do you have to management to discuss these things? And maybe that would give you an advantage of, as an as an active manager, as this is a, a fast-growing area? I think it's the conversations have been getting easier uh, because we have been having this conversation for a very long time uh, within Asia for many, many years. And, you know, um, our, our name works in such a way that because we are long-term investors, over time, the management of these companies trust us um, to have these conversations and also trust us that, 
we are genuinely aligned with them in terms of the long-term interest of the company. We are just not out there to ask these questions. And then when there's something happens, then, then we sell out the company and make a quick buck out of it. Um, we are there as a long-term investors. So having that, that trust that we have been building with management um, definitely helps with the engagements that we do with the company. And generally, we meet our companies uh, at least twice a year. Now, given the pandemic, it's more of a virtual meeting. Um, we can't do a physical thing at the moment, but hopefully that will, that will improve as the pandemic eases. But um, the engagement that we do can happen during the two company meetings at least, or if there's a more pressing issue, we can have um, meetings along the way as well, and there'll be email communications. I, I think generally, um, companies in Asia are very receptive. They know this is important. And I think most of the time, um, the issue has been they don't know how to do it. And therefore, our role as um, a pan-Asian base with you know, a global presence and our European counterparts do know this a lot better as well. We then share the best practices that we have seen from other parts of the region to the companies and sort of like guide them as to how they can do it to improve their disclosures, etc. So you will see that there is a strong alignment of interest. And that's why um, I think the conversations have become easier. And on the ESG theme, Adrian, what do you think of the environmental risks for the chip makers? So Taiwan is suffering one of its worst droughts in decades and and Samsung's chip revenues fell, I believe, because of the freak winter storm in Texas. How how what do you think of the environmental risks for for the for the chip makers? I think water has been highlighted as a concern for chip makers for some time. Um, what we do is that we, we work very closely um, with all the resources that we have within our teams. We have a team of about uh, we have a team of over forty across the region, and then we've got uh, ESG specialists as well. And what we do is that ESG specialists help us highlight teams that uh, we should be aware of, or we can lobby for, or agitate for, and then um, the and then we work together collectively to, to highlight this. Water has been something that Samsung and TSMC has sought out for some time. And actually, they've had commitments to, to improving the quality and, and making sure that um, they, they, they are reasonably well positioned uh, and are aware and control that risk. And that's, that's what they, they do. But the drought is a difficult one. And I think that's one of the operational risks that you have of an operation of this size, and it's something that they need to continue to focus on. But we are convinced that Samsung and TSMC uh, are among the best, if not the best, in, in this. And um, given the, their awareness and their know-how, uh, they will be able to manage this risk within a, a reasonable framework. And I, the other risk for TSMC, I think, is the political risk. What do you think would happen? What would be the outlook for the company if relations between Taiwan and China got severely worse. Shall I leave that to you too? Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a difficult one, but I think uh, we have to understand the context that um, China actually imports a very large amount of semiconductor over the last few years. Um, the, the amount is very, very sizable. I, I would put it up there together with the oil imports. So it's not just that TSMC is dependent on China. I think China is also dependent on the importing of semiconductor chips where TSMC is 
perhaps the, the world's leader in terms of manufacturing the advanced part of semiconductor chips. So it is a delicate balance um, on the political interests and the economic interests there as um, semiconductor chips do power a lot of the digital economy that we have um, spent time to talk about. Um, they are the building blocks as well. And if China wants to continue to invest in building up their 5G infrastructure, in building up you know, the autonomous vehicle, etc., um, in building up the artificial intelligence capabilities, um, you will all need semiconductor chips. So in the meantime, I think what we have seen is that China has actually put it part of their 14 five-year plan. And this is a continuing theme from the 13 five-year plan as well, that they want to be more self-sufficient in semiconductor chips. And, and I suppose um, that will continue to be a very much longer-term structural um, push that China will try to make and continue, will continue to invest uh, um, at the moment, I think for the next three to five years, uh, China will continue to invest there, uh, but it will continue to be very reliant on the global supply chain with regard to the advanced part of the um, semiconductor chips. And I mean, if we look at TSMC as well, China is a big market for them. Um, and in terms of their production base, you also see that um, the most advanced part is in Taiwan. They are, I think, as a result of the trade war and and I think various countries con coming to, to realize the security of the semiconductor supply chain. We are seeing more investment coming through in the US as well. Um, so that's the next part that is coming up. And I think over the last few months, we are hearing news flow of, you know, more investments in Japan, more investment in Europe. I mean, those are not as concrete as the announcement that we heard in the US, but that is coming through. Um, and TSMC does have a semiconductor chip factory in China, but they are perhaps not on the most advanced side of the spectrum. And what's your outlook for Samsung? That's a big holding. We think Samsung is is very well um, positioned for growth. And, and Samsung, one of the Samsung main business in semiconductor chip, um, they do what you call a memory chip. And, and that would be uh, the chips that you use within data centers, for example, as well. So um, this is one sector that is going through a, what you call a cyclical recovery at the moment. And therefore, from the point of view, um, as more data centers get built up around the world, um, you start to see more demand from that for, for memory chips. And that is going to be a long-term structural trend. And Samsung is the global market leader uh, within this space. So you are seeing that strong uh, longer-term structural trend uh, coupled by the nearer-term cyclical trend for Samsung within that business. We are hearing more movements as well um, and this might be a smaller part of samsung but uh, samsung does have a pretty decent 5g infrastructure business and as with some of the global reshuffling that happened um, given uh, the us and china trade war um, this creates more business opportunities for samsung to be able to um, increase their market share in this space so this is another increasing opportunity and I think um, other parts of their business, they, they are also in um, consumer electronics like mobile phones, for example. Again, some of that, um, they will be gaining some market share as a result of the US-China trade war shakeup. Um, that is a growing opportunity. But I think the most attractive part is that when you put all this together, um, you have a company that is strong in various businesses and is you know, attractively priced and they have very strong free cash flows as well. So I think the financials aspect of Samsung is also um, something that differentiates itself um, from the rest of the uh, US technology peer group, which tends to be on the expensive end. Um, Samsung is on the relatively cheaper spectrum. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you. And um, I'm afraid we're getting close to time, but I just want to ask a couple of questions about the fund itself. The gearing levels, 8%, have a look earlier. It's, is this, how does this compare with historic levels, Adrian? Is it reflective of, of a rich opportunity set? It's about, it's on the, it's slightly on the low side for historical. The way we look at gearing is that there's a certain level of structural gearing that we want to take to give the, the portfolio some uh, modest boost in terms of returns. Uh, because over the long term, we expect the markets to do reasonably well. And then we expect the trust to outperform that over the long term as well. Uh, so six to eight percent is broadly what we would have, what I would call us having a, a layer of structured growth. And then at certain points in times where, uh, there, there are weak cycles, uh, we like, we, we would like, if possible, to top up gearing a little bit more to 10 to 12, maybe 15 percent. Last year, there was a, there was a point in time in Q1, Q2 when with the COVID shutdowns that there was an opportunity but uh, that, that dip didn't last long, uh, and, and therefore, we've actually, with, with the strength in the markets at this point in time, uh, we're quite comfortable with, with an 8% leverage uh, effect on, on the trust. So there are opportunities, but uh, as, a, as a house, we don't tend to have, be really aggressive on gearing levels as well. So I, I think that if you do get a dip, we, we, a strong dip uh, that's not fundamentally grounded, we would be gearing up the portfolio. But at this point in time, with the way markets are, with a lot of positivism, at least in the capital markets for a recovery, uh, I think this is, is at the adequate level of gearing. And the discount is um, has tightened a bit from sort of average of the last few years, but it's still wider than some of your peers, despite good performance recently. What? Why do you think this is? Oh, that's... <laughs> so is that a fair question? <laughs> it, well... We, we, we doing, we, we do, we, we leaving no stone unturned when it comes down to performance to make sure that we do the best for the trust and the trust does the best against the benchmark and its peer group. So I, I think we're doing the right things that way in terms of communication and getting the message out. That's, that's something that we've, we've invested quite a bit of resource in and we are, we are, we, you know, with the new tools and, um, social media and the internet, there are new ways of getting our message out as well. So that's something that will be a continual focus for us going forward. And then other than that, the, the, the marketplace does what it wants to do. Um, we, we did have a, a soft period of performance about five years back that might still cause some overhang. Uh, but, um, you know, if we keep this up, the, the, the discount should theoretically narrow and we can, we can just make sure that we focus on doing the right things by the trust. Make it look like an attractive entry point. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for, but that was really, really interesting. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.